Oh, uh, I hope you have something great to wear tonight, because we're going to a party. A party? I... I want to introduce you to someone. I gotta admit that it seems really, I don't know, unnecessary to spend some money on a website and podcast hosting to talk about the failures of capitalism in 2020. But as Future says, fuck it, mask off. One of the most frequent casualties of the capitalist market's never-ending hunger is human history, history of you and me and the people around us. What we know as history is nothing but a sliver of some world that once existed. It can't exist now. History is a collection of stories we tell ourselves, and the stories we tell ourselves about games seem out of date and incomplete. But who am I? My name is Jay Munford, non-binary and tired in the Midwest. Sounds like a dating ad. I'm not a legal expert, and nothing on this show constitutes legal advice. But I do have experience testifying in patent court as an expert in libraries and publications. I got myself a grad degree in library and information science. And I've worked as a researcher, expert witness, public library director, and retro game store clerk. So when I had this idea, I reached out to somebody, a friend of mine. The only man with a brain capable of surviving true video game mania. And his name is Mike Bachman. You might know him from the Greeting Adventurers pod or his project with the Glass Beach Band, Roll for Streetwise. What you may not know is that Mike has an encyclopedic knowledge of games reaching far back into the history of this art form. Got a question about goofy bootleg consoles? That's Mike. Flash and firmware? That's Mike. Installing custom parts onto the circuit board and embarrassing me with soldering? Yeah, that's Mike too. Finding a single cursed digital object, i.e. video maybe, telling me to watch it and then just reveling while I succumb to madness? That's Mike. There's nobody better. This show, Game Crimes, it exists because I'm pissed off. I'm pissed off that video game history is disappearing in my lifetime. In games, unlike film studies or literary criticism, looking into the past has long been relegated to collectors and obsessives. The only decent game preservation efforts, by decent I mean descriptive and accessible, are either community-led by a lot of really cool, brave people, I have to say, but also a lot of uh, whereas groups and ROM hackers. Game companies themselves don't really give a shit about history unless they can find a way to sell it to you. Game Crimes exists because the past is way more interesting when you study the margins. Criminality is deeply intertwined with human history, and games are no exception. Labor abuse, custom firmware, FBI stings, fan translations, the mafia, crunch time, my list is quite long. Well, I guess it's exactly that long, but I could go on and on. The show exists to let you in on all of that forbidden knowledge. You know, the kind that they don't want you to know about. And by they, I mean Nintendo, your internet provider, and the federal government. So is Game Crimes a history show? Yep. 
and a true crime show? Uh-huh. Also a how-to and an interactive stream. This is not a show about teaching you how to break the law or pirate games. In fact, we want to teach you exactly how not to break the law. Let us shepherd you through the valley of the goons and the dorks. Our brains are strong. They have been tempered by years of the GameFAQs character wars. We are psychic game gladiators battling against a strange world. A world where the meaningful accomplishments of a game developer's life are often remembered by their inclusion as a trophy in Smash Brothers. In closing, let me spit a little library science at you nerds. Studying and preserving history is not about encasing your own personal memories into amber. It's a very lonely way to look at the world, at the art that you consume, at yourself. Studying history is about finding meaning in our own lives right now. And in right now in 2020, all of our structures are failing and things that used to seem important feel paper thin. Crime time. The first rule of S.R. Ranganathan's theory of library science is a very easy four words to remember. Books are for use. A perfectly preserved, pristine, rare book may as well have no damn text in it. Nobody's going to read it. So I also would propose that games are for play. This podcast, for all of its goals and intentions, is about getting you to play games. Hopefully with the people you love. If you pick up this podcast and you grab one game from it that you really love, or you, or you go and fall into some Wikipedia wormhole, that's good enough for me. Then again, I have librarian brain, you know. Pointing things out and describing things is how we get our serotonin. But I just wanted to make one copy. You say, I'll just make a copy for me and a friend. Then he'll make one and she'll make one and where will it end? One leads to another, then ten, then more. And no one buys any discs from the store. So no one gets paid and they can't make more. The posse breaks up and that close the stores. Don't copy. Don't copy that floppy. So let me break this down for you. Hi, everybody. My name is Jay Munford. I'm a researcher. I love video games. And most of all, I love to hear myself talk. And I'm joined by... Hey, it's me. It's Mike Bachman. You can't prove I did nothing. Whoa. I didn't do those crimes. <laughs> Is that how I talk? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I think it's a local inflection. It's charming. Yeah, You're from... Yeah. Uh, is this an Illinois thing? It's a, a West Central <laughs> Illinois thing. <laughs> this is the local accent? Yeah, if you get like 30 minutes to the west of, of Peoria, you really start to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm from rural Michigan, so I just drop uh, all D's and, and, and G's at the end of words and, and sound a little Southern, but for weird reasons. That's it. You basically sound like one of the cartoon mobsters on the wacky races. If you think about it, like local dialects have to start somehow. I say it's a local dialect. I might be the first, <laughs> but it's still local. You can't take that from me. This is real state of the art shit, folks, and you're on the ground level. Uh, what are we talking about today? <laughs> We're talking about abandonware and freeware, which is, God, there's, there's no real easy definition for it. It's essentially, uh, what, free computer games? Is that the best way to put it? Free old computer games? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's probably the best way to describe freeware. Abandonware gets a little bit more complicated. Uh, let's dive in. I've done some research, and I'd like to tell you all a little bit of a story. 
And our story begins in the 1880s, clearly the best time of your life, 1886. Thanks to constant shitposting by Victor Hugo, author of Les Miserables and other books in French, he starts petitioning a bunch of these countries to try to get their copyright on the same level, to try to align their copyright laws. And his argument is essentially that when you have a bunch of countries with different copyright laws that are all contiguous, essentially the copyright laws don't matter because the commerce going back and forth between the countries is going to invalidate any sort of printing restrictions. And that's really a thing in Europe, but not really a thing here in the U.S. where I'm based. And I'm assuming, Mike, you're in Illinois the U.S., not like Illinois, Myanmar. I'm roughly outside of Myanmar. <laughs> Adjacent to it, though. I mean, like in a cosmic sense. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And I got to say this, Victor Hugo, uh, love your books. This copyright shit, man, I don't, I don't care for it, buddy. And if he wants to post back at me, he's more than welcome. <laughs> so what happens is a bunch of countries, mostly European countries, come together and they draft up a series of copyright laws that are largely used as the basis for modern copyright law. I say modern, even though this document itself hasn't been updated since 1971. Like, you know how the PS5 is coming out? This was even before the PS2. My stupid country, the United States, is totally insecure forever. And it completely refused to join any sort of multinational copyright agreement because it wanted to pass copyright laws that were more favorable towards corporations and less favorable towards individual copyright holders. Go figure. But then eventually, like around 1989, where you see a lot more international commerce uh, striking up, the U.S. will join this kind of modified copyright agreement. And then everybody's kind of on the same page for a while. Kind of. But the problem is that crime exists not just in this direct oppositional way to police or cops or whatever, but in the fringes of legality. <laughs> when, when something that you're doing it's difficult to determine how legal it is. That's kind of where a lot of crime operates. And, and copyright crime is very, very similar to that. From 1989 on, I'm sure y'all can guess why things changed. The internet scrambles the board. And a lot of other things scramble the board. Japan and South Korea start becoming predominant. China's manufacturing sector opens up incredibly to international commerce. And of course, everyone's passing shit back and forth on the internet. And suddenly copyright law is like a suggestion or a guess or more accurately, kind of a sloppy set of protections between different large corporations. The U.S. civil system that handles a lot of the IP and patent issues is largely a big money game. You know, an individual doesn't have a lot of good chance unless they have some powerful firm behind them. This is the field I work in. Why am I bringing this up in a podcast about video games? Well, because game crimes, so to speak, committing crimes by playing video games is largely a violation of copyright and patent law. You're making an illegal reproduction of the game. There's some sort of unrecognized attribution. It's a bootleg or a copy. You could be distributing modified code like a ROM hack. And that's nothing to say of the endless parade of things like labor violations that uh, patent law really, really encourages companies get to take your patents and own them until the end of time in this country. And that's just kind of how it goes. Woof. Yeah. Which is the only thing keeping my bootleg Mickey Mouse cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's as just just a twinkle in my Mike, eye. I've read the script. It's not the only thing. I'm just going to say your depiction of Goofy questionable. Your depiction of Donald 
brave. I'm just saying that I think that Goofy and Master Chief have a lot in common <laughs> and combining them into one character, I, I think illustrates that beautifully. Well, thank you. And I'd like to thank everyone for joining me on. Uh, I'm interviewing the author of Ready Player One. <laughs> <laughs> He's sharing with me all these unproduced scripts that we've never gotten to see before. I never saw a dime <laughs> from that movie. <laughs> and now they're telling me it's a book. <laughs> You ever see the Mario brother? No, the green one. Wait, was Mario in that? Was he? I don't know. No, no. You know what? You disrespect the craft of games and that's what you get. The Mario-less digital world where you can never meet your fun jumping friend and, and love him passionately. The way that we both do for Master Chief. <laughs> Just tickle his mustache and... And think of think of the I days you'll have crack together. open that armor like a lobster shell. <laughs> <laughs> the point I'd like to make is that copyright law itself is kind of an enemy when it comes to artistic expression. And that a lot of copyright law is unnecessary and very, very, very punitive. It's not just a matter of protecting somebody's creative rights. It's a matter of controlling that person's ability to make money from that product. I know the, the show is called Game Crimes. So we're going to talk about fun gray market stuff. But I think that there is kind of real shit at stakes when we talk about this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Like, it, I'm not rich. And if I make a mistake, either saying something stupid on this show or or publishing a game without the proper font license, you know, I could be really hit up for a lot of money. And that's a really scary proposition when all you're trying to do is make what you would consider to be some minor artistic work and put it out there in the public. Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems to me like it's more um, like it's definitely more punitive for the little guy. Oh, yeah, for sure. Some of these cases that were enacted around the time the DMCA passed uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. That was when you started seeing people like getting sued nine million dollars for using Napster and stuff like that. That's that thing that keeps taking down all my YouTube videos. <laughs> well, again, you got to get Master Chief's permission. I had like three really funny Home Alone YouTube poops <laughs> that got taken down because of that thing. This is art lost to time, people. Alexander's statue crumbling in the desert. I, I had a rise of the rise of the planet of the apes trailer <laughs> where I spliced in. I spliced in uh, clips from the most valuable primate series and Dunstan checks in and that's taken off and I'll never get that back. Uh, I, I got to say, Mike, I, I hear you. I'm sympathetic to your plight, but a real Dunstan head would absolutely be able to tell the difference between the MVP and the Dunstan. Well, for sure, for sure. It was basically like it was it was the Rise of the Planet of the Apes trailer and the part where he's like he's like he's like we've altered the apes and he's like you mean increased intelligence. It shows like like the monkey doing a kickflip or some shit. And like yeah, it it, it was all supposed to be in the Planet of the Apes universe. This is a real thing. I'm not making this up. I made this I video. You. I'm just kind of taken aback with it because it's lost to time now. And I'm a big ape fan and I'll there's never a, be able to enjoy the apes, uh, you know, in different contexts. There's a part where like the gorilla is jumping onto the helicopter rung. I went into After Effects and put a snowboard on his feet. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about copyright being some sort of enemy to artistic expression, it's not only robbing us of Mike's beautiful primate videos. And clearly the passion put behind mostly. them. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Mostly it's robbing us of that. Um, 
<laughs> if anything, if it's robbing us of anything. Yeah. Um, well, like I say, I'm casting these people as villains. And that's, I mean, they're self-interested people who care about money. But if you're the sort of person who might be losing a lot of money, they would certainly look like a villain. And in that case, you got to find a hero, right? And in my mind, heroes are people in the communities they build outside of commerce. Video games have a really long history of creating these different patent and distribution structures. And sometimes that's intentional. That's because of the author's intent. It's not just necessarily piracy. I mean, although piracy exists and has existed for a long time, it's been an endemic part of the internet since it started. You could find evidence of people passing bootleg software around on ARPANET, which was the U.S. military's predecessor to the internet in the late 60s, early 70s. People were just literally like bootlegging a more boring version of asteroids. (laughs) (laughs) Which, if you're wondering what it's like... Impossible. I know, right? The reason why I'm talking about these interesting distribution models is because way, way back in 1983, I'm not talking now, 1983, something really, really interesting happens in the software market, which is that software developers start distributing their software for free, kind of only for the purpose of bucking the conventional market model. The premise of you going into a computer store and spending XYZ money for a computer game, which you then bring home, was outdated. These creators were often some sort of employee of a large tech corporation. They found themselves really, really, really unsatisfied by working in that environment. When you say like bucking the conventional mm-hmm. market model, do you mean like a way to gain exposure then? Or like you're giving it away for free, you're not making anything off the software. What, what's, what's the benefit? I, I think what you're largely seeing is not necessarily a singular motive, but more of a reaction to a market that they find unfriendly. Mm-hmm. That, that's just speculation on my part, though. Because when you look at these individuals, they all kind of have different reasons for doing it. And you would think if it were some sort of like political statement or or labor statement, then it would be a little more consistent. The first guy, Jim Knopf, he worked at IBM and he designed some software to help his local church plan their community picnics. Then a bunch of churches wanted to use it. And he didn't feel good about charging the church for his software. So he found a way to distribute it freely and then operated off of donations. At some point in time, he had to quit his job at IBM because he was too busy with his free program. It's, it's a very weird thing to hear, but it absolutely happened. It's, it's like the software version of living in a monastery in the middle of the woods or something. Then you get this next guy, Andrew Flugelman. And he's, he's done a bunch of weird stuff. He, he's founded PC Magazine, which if you're like me and you've read John Diverak for 80 years, definitely left an impression on me. He was integral as part of what they called the new games movement, which is sort of this philosophical manifesto, for lack of a better way to put it, that encouraged nonviolent games. Very, very interesting dude. It's ironic to me that I've stolen so many (laughs) demo discs out of PC Magazine. Wait, maybe that's PC Gamer. Did PC Magazine have demo discs? I think they did. Yeah, because you could get like demos of like Lotus Notes and shit like that. Like, why would you need office software? But hey. Yeah, no, I I definitely stole those discs all the time from the grocery (laughs) store. And and his reasons for going free with it, he literally said, I'm not making a statement. It's just an experiment, which to me makes it sound like a dude who's really into his own ideas. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the same time, if it leads to essentially this really weird marketing structure where more people get access to something, I personally am not against that. And, I, and I'm really into my own ideas. It just seems like his are better. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if everyone was into their own ideas a little bit more, maybe we would all, uh, I don't know, do what this guy did, which was disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Instantly disappear as soon as we reach self-actualization. Oh, what, a, what a utopia. <laughs> there are conflicting reports, but essentially he drove his car somewhere in the Bay Area and then disappeared. And his car was found in the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge, but there was no sign that anybody had jumped or left it. So, yeah, figure that out. That was an 85. This, for this is Flugelman? This is Flugelman. He's gone, baby. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Flugelman is actually a really interesting guy, and his writing is fascinating. You know, no, no disrespect to him. A guy that is incredibly interesting and definitely left an impression. He definitely jumped, though, right? Like, I, speculation I, on all our parts, but... There's only been one... Where th- do you go? Well, the, the thing is, there's only been one indication that he had any mental health issues. And it's sort of like this, this suicide note that some people think didn't exist and some people think was a fraud. It really is up in the air. And the kind of information that you would normally expect the uh, true crime obsessives on the Internet to dig up, I think they've kind of just left this guy alone for the most part. And nobody got like cell phone video or... My favorite one of these guys, though. Oh, my favorite one of these guys. A man named Bob Wallace. Oh, Jesus. The greatest. I love him. So he claims that he wanted to give his software away for free due to a realization he had during a psychedelic trip. So uh, if you've ever seen the episode of The Simpsons where Homer talks to a coyote and Johnny Cash, it's essentially the same thing, except you then decide to distribute your your office software. (laughs) (laughs) What what if I gave away Skype for business? (laughs) That's literally what he did. And the thing is, this program was so good, people were like, (laughs) all right man cool go have some more experiences and believe me the dude did in the late 90s he started a bookstore with his wife called the pro mind movement bookstore that's no like i don't know if i don't know if you're pro mind or not well i mean i like to think that i am like i don't think that i've i've done anything actively antagonistic to my own mind Uh, excuse me i have to put down this uh, glue i'm huffing to listen to Oh, okay. Okay. Well, if you're gonna count that, if you're gonna count glue, and <laughs> well, my glue, not your and glue. Amphetamines and yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> hey, look, it's not your fault that I'm chewing through diet pills I got at the gas station. <laughs> I'm gonna get hydroxycut. <laughs> <laughs> this is a judgment-free zone here, folks. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if you could live like Bob Wallace, if your life was essentially that you had a series of psychedelic experience that caused you to open a bookstore with your wife, cool brain. That's actually a great life. You could be mm-hmm. proud of that shit. I want a bookstore. I just want to call it like turbo brain. I want to call it like <laughs> psycho mind. I want to call it the monster energy library. I just want to go fucking wild with it, man. This guy isn't afraid of being weird. And he basically... Uh, spent the rest of his life helping the drug website Arrowid to get off the ground. You should go to Arrowid if you ever do drugs to make sure that you are not doing drugs in a way that might hurt you. Um, oh. It's essentially a public library of drug knowledge for things like street drugs, marijuana, prescriptions, etc. Even stuff like roots and The reason why this thing exists and has existed for 20 plus years is what I believe is a genuine public service is largely due to this guy who put somewhere like $8 million into it. Jesus. Um, Early on in uh, my relationship with my wife, uh, 
she being a nurse and able to identify pills on site had a habit of just putting all of her pills into one bottle. Oh no! <laughs> and, I, and I'd be like, Hey, I need an Advil. And, and I'm like, they're all in the, she since stopped doing this. Cause she realized that I'm nowhere near as equipped to identify what, what things are than she. And, and I was like, Hey, I need a, I need, I need like something here. And I'm like, which one is it? And she's like, you know, there's a website you can go to that'll just tell you what's what. And I'm like, I shouldn't have to go to a website. <laughs> the, the label on the bottle exists for that reason. <laughs> just walk out I, for I the, love my wife. No, I, you should. You should. It seems like she's uh, hand dealing with a lot right now. <laughs> I just like the idea of you just kind of Charlie Brown walking out of the, uh, the bathroom going, oh, dear, I'm not a shapes man. I've never been able to do shapes. I can't start doing shapes today, honey. I can. It's not just shapes. There's letters. There's numbers. There's a lot that goes in. Colors. There's a lot that goes into identifying pills. Oh, God. There's probably weights, too. I didn't even think of this. You're right. My brain is opening up like I'm in the Matrix. A movie I fell asleep in the middle of. So for our purposes, these kind of projects where developers are giving their software away for free is called freeware. If you go to Wikipedia, the full definition is games distributed free by their creators or something like that. And this actually, believe it or not, was the dominant distribution model for a lot of PC and Mac games in the late 80s and early 90s. Computers at the time being a luxury product without a lot of shelf space at your average Meyer or Fred Meyer or Freddy's or other grocery store where you buy games. If you're like me, and those are the only places you had access to games because you grew up a little bit in the country, it wasn't realistic to drive to some boutique software store four hours away in order to pick up a copy of Doom. I don't know where you grew up, Mike, but my experience when you live in a place like that, I wouldn't call it a cultural desert, but you're very, very limited in what you see. And so what you kind of realized was the bigger market at the time is kind of wild to think about because it isn't just do. I lived out in the country and the only exposure I had to like most pop culture was a video rental store that wasn't even in a town. It was just on a route. It was called Burt's. And that's where I got, that's where I rented clay fighters. Yep. And that's, that's it. Yeah. That's it. As far as, as far as I'm concerned, clay fighters was the only video game available to rent. <laughs> I picked up mine. Mine wasn't at a, uh, a route. It was actually in a quaint uh, four corner stop, but it was called. Tan- when you say you picked up yours, you mean your your copy of Clay Fighters? Yes, my copy of Clay Fighter. But no, when I, <laughs> yeah. when I picked up my games from the from the rental shop, it was at a uh, hole in the wall on a four corner stop called Tans and Tapes, where mm-hmm. because of the presence of two tanning beds, it was always like one hundred and five degrees. And so, just oh, imagine perfect. the smell of old VHS cases. Cheap plastic, polyurethane, getting that nice heat sheen. You ever touch plastic and it like oozes? It's gross. Yeah, it's gross. 
I was actually exposed to a lot of games because of a babysitter I had, uh, who I guess her her husband was like real in the tank. I mean, I played some weird PC games at the time. If I were at home, you know, my access was very much limited by my geographic location. But when you're selling games like this, it's not at all. You see a magazine ad for something, send in a postcard, say, and if you cover shipping and handling your game in the middle. That was a real thing for a very long time. That's cool. And a lot of cases, it wasn't totally free, right? Like you would get a version of it for free. And then if you paid uh, 50 bucks or whatever, you would get some crazy upgraded version. Uh, Doom was very big in that model, but a lot of games followed it. What is Abandonware, though? Abandonware is a little different because this is where the copyright law talk comes in. Abandonware is software that still falls under the ownership of a game company or rights holder, but is unlikely to be defended in court as the product has no value and is no longer available for purchase. That's kind of the legal definition. Basically, what we're talking about is a collection of materials called orphan works, which are materials where the ownership is kind of unclear. The material isn't in distribution. The game's not for sale. The company's not pursuing any sort of rights violations. So does that mean that downloading abandonware is legal? Hell no. No. But does it mean that you will be taken to court for downloading abandonware, especially some 30 year old PC game? If you look at the history of legal cases in my country, at least, it doesn't seem very likely. These are very popular websites and they've buried around for a long, long time. In the modern day, you will often find abandonware distributed alongside freeware games as if they were the same damn thing. If the definition of abandonware doesn't mean like doesn't mean it's legal for you to download then what's the use of that definition at all? Well, the use of the definition is essentially to prove that these works are covered by some type of copyright law, but are unlikely to be involved in any court case in the future, if that makes sense. So let's say if you, Mike, had a really bright idea that you were going to start selling frozen pizzas that had your face on them and pepperoni. Mm -hmm. Right. For two months, this is a great idea. And you're never, ever, ever, ever going to make this successful because you start getting complaints about how the face is scary (laughs) and how you gave the pepperoni eyes instead of just pepperoni. But it just didn't work. And there's no need to bring the company back. You're never going to really care if someone starts making their own pepperoni pizzas with their own face on it, even if it might be a copyright violation. Because to prove that it's a copyright violation, You'd have to enter into civil court, which, like I said, is a money game, right? It's a game where you're going to hire a lawyer and I'm going to hire a lawyer and we're going to throw money at each other until someone wins. Right. So there's often not a lot of motivation for pursuing those copyright models. And that's how these websites get away with it, quote unquote. These things have been hosted online for almost 25 years and nobody cares. And in a lot of cases with copyright law, you break the law until you get caught. Mm-hmm. but they come down much harder on people who distribute these things than people who use them. So, you know, multiple abandonware sites have been shut down over the years. A lot of people who have been involved in this kind of projects have been, you know, <laughs> sent to jail or whatever, but that doesn't speak very much for the millions and millions of downloads that's, that these materials have acquired in the meantime. And in some cases, the sad part is that this is all we have of those games. There's no PC library or museum where you get to go when you have this huge collection of PC games categorized, detailed with stories behind them. This is kind of the best you got. Right. That sucks because a lot of game preservation projects are really, really, really community oriented. 
And I think abandonware is a really, really good case of where the law fails to accommodate for human behavior. Yeah. Because abandonware is really, really important for historians and archivists. There's no way for a historian or an archivist to integrate video games into their model without changing their model. I used to be a public library director. I have a master's degree in library and information science that includes studying archives. Archiving is hard work that takes a lot, a lot, a lot of attention. And the reason why there's no central library or something to detail every game that ever came out and when and how is because there's no money to do it. Game companies have proven themselves unwilling to do this work through and through and through. You'd be amazed what games are just lost to time. Silent Hill is a great example. I've got friends, uh, friends of mine that are that have asked me about why I am so partial to physical games. Yeah. Why I make sure that I only buy them physical because it's I mean, you look at like what the Wii, the Wii shop, I believe, is offline now. Totally offline. Yep. Anything you bought there, if you don't have it downloaded to your Wii, that's gone. You don't own that. You you don't own it anymore. And I think a lot. I think and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jay, Mm -hmm. if you know this, but I, I believe most licenses like if you buy if you quote unquote buy a game in a digital marketplace, most of the time that'll it'll be written into the license agreement that it's that you don't own that game it's 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 written more like a rental than it is anything else because they reserve the right to revoke that access at any time absolutely and the other part of that too is that a lot of physical materials are sold with those same agreements on them even though they aren't legally enforceable so if you buy a copy of say i don't know my favorite ps2 game the king of Colosseum 2 you buy a copy of king of Colosseum 2 and you make a reproduction for yourself as a backup, some laws say that's okay and others don't. And there's really no way for you as an individual to sort that out in a way that's going to make you feel comfortable about making that decision. Even though we know that like hardware breaks down too, right? Discs and floppy disks and disk drives all submit to BitRot eventually. Eventually. I think Mike's really, really accurate to say that buying physical copies is the best way to keep these things preserved. But time makes fools of everybody. And eventually, if we don't back these things up, they're just going to die. That's how books work. That's how poems work. That's how everything's worked since the beginning of time. The question is, like, is your investment in games personal? Or is it the sort of ever-churning market that you dedicate X amount of your money to every year? That, I think, is a real distinction in, in terms of why people would use games. Because there are a lot of things going on in Abandonware that have required librarians, historians, game preservationists to get really, really clever. If you visit the Internet Archive, which is an online public library, you can download KeyGens, and that is a a certified public library in California, meaning public libraries can now distribute whereas legally. (laughs) (laughs) That's an official Library of Congress designation when faced with some of these issues that they allowed things like software crackers and and KeyGens Because there was no other way to preserve these materials, those software crackers and key gens certainly weren't made by Microsoft. They were made by people. For me as a librarian, I've I've spent a lot of times in libraries and and I'm no longer in libraries. I, I have a very, very, I guess I'll just say strong opinion on what it means to be involved with preservation and history. What's really, really important there is that these games are still going to be accessible in the future, not to me, but to whoever comes after me. It's a long view. That's why I think you'll see these in absence of any formal uh, effort to collect these things and, and, to, and to note these things. You see websites like, uh, like Abandonware Rings pop up instead. And that happened a lot in the late 90s where people would just make a website 
If you don't know what a web ring is, it's essentially a list of websites. So they would make a website that's a list of a website. They might be 20 different abandonware websites and they're all focused on different things. Maybe this one guy's really into Monkey Island, but you can get some stuff there. It's a very patchwork solution. And people will fill in those gaps, which I think is very, very interesting. Holy shit. Game copy world is still up. It is. It is. <laughs> I'll be damned. Uh, the underdogs are still up, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So basically, this story ends in 1997, February 1997. One of the only successful cases that we have of somebody shutting down an abandonware website. Because Jeff Ringering, who coined the term abandonware, on his website, The Abandonware Ring, started that website in February 1997 and was taken down by October 1997. And at that point in time, when that website was taken down, it was too late. All of the people who had invested in this idea of abandonware and the idea of sharing these games all started their own individual abandonware rings. And eventually there's a billion different websites, some that we're going to go into in detail. Let's talk about what all of this abandonware freeware business means for you. Well, first things, free games. And I know I'm saying that lightly, but a lot of freeware, which is totally legal to download, is a fully fledged game that's incredibly fun to play. And I do use abandonware. I regularly download abandonware and I like it. I frequently use abandonware to play old games that I am curious about. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've done that as well. Yeah, Windows, DOS or Mac. One thing that strikes me is a lot of these are older games, so they're really, really small files. If you have a shitty internet connection or you're stuck trying to get something on a phone, this is a great way to go. Yeah, I do feel like it's worth mentioning if, if we're talking about uh, listeners being able to access this stuff is that you really got to you really got to be careful about where you're going to find these things. Yes, I agree. Once you get into these into these kind of gray areas of the Internet and also legality, you start to get into like here's the website where you download this, where you download this game. And then here's an ad with a big button that says download, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, et cetera, et cetera. Just like, you know, just, just keep an eye out. Make sure you're absolutely sure what you're getting. You're definitely poking around in some of the weirder corners of the internet and, you know, bring protection, bring some sort of uh, mm -hmm. ad blocker, have some sort of virus software. Uh, very, very good idea. We do have a couple of uh, abandonware websites that I would like to recommend later on. That should be largely safe for everybody. So hopefully you won't have to go too deep. But with a lot of these gray market topics we're tackling, Mike is absolutely right. You can get in trouble real quick. And that just means be yeah. safe. We're going to try to be your guides through that. But that also means telling you when not to bother. Yeah, going deep sure. into IRC to try to find an old game. Don't do it. Not worth the health risk. <laughs> um, so another thing that's really great about Abandonware is that you can actually kind of offload a lot of the uh, legal concern by just playing these games in the browser. A lot of uh, web browsers support Flash or support some sort of uh, software model that will allow for emulation of these things. So you can just go and play Doom on a browser. And that way you're not downloading the software. You're not intentionally, you know, collecting this giant pile of files. You're just kind of going to this website and then leaving this website. That's an option too. 
Another thing I think are great about Abandonware, Freeware, they tend to be older games and old people like old games. So if you have old people in your life, like me, I'm older than 30, which means I'm half dead. Then I like talking about older games. <laughs> Wait, what? It's like you have a direct transcript from my brain at two in the morning. My goal is to get my brain on two in the morning mode at all times. It's probably yeah. not a good plan, actually. I should rethink that. I've been involved with video games for a very long time. And if I count being a kid, like being having this be a, pat, a hobby of mine, it's been like 25 fucking years. And it's really weird to me that I've got all of this past in here. That's my cultural reference for how things work and, and how I understand the world. And there's such a distinction for some of my friends. I love that. I love that, like, by playing these old games, you can get to know each other better and you get to, to learn each other's backgrounds and shit. It's kind of cool. You know what um, kind of bums me out in that vein? Um, if I could bring the mood down a little bit. Please do. Uh, <laughs> I was talking with my nephews and I think about like the games that that I grew up with that I can easily just download a file and, and gain access to. But the, that landscape is, is going to be very different for them when they get older, where with the prevalence of like games as a service mm -hmm. and like there, you know, if I want to go back and I want to play Mario World because that's what I played when I was a kid, like I can go play Mario World when they're my age and they want to go back and play Fortnite. Oh yeah. They're screwed. Like, I mean, sorry. If, even if it's still up at that point, it's not going to be in its current form. No. no. And the other thing about like, that is if it does exist in any sort of form, which seems really unlikely. I mean, most of those online games have a lifespan of six or seven years at best. WoW is kind of the exception with a lot of those games. You're going to be looking at community led efforts to keep some kind of server up, which of course means that you bleed off all your user base. If you're someone like me who has played these like community hosted games like Fantasy Star, for instance, or another mm -hmm. good example, I think uh, Classic WoW was like that for a while. I used to do it with tribes as well. I think that you really are kind of at the mercy of the people around you for these games to just exist. Right. Yeah. Like because if everything is about these games is so social and I think a lot of those online games are, you're never going to be able to recreate that social environment either. You're yeah, going to exactly. recreate the environment where there are 30 million frothing teenagers all willing to kill each other over Fortnite emote, which is cool, by the way. I'm not dragging teenagers. I think that's dope. It's, it's not to say that it, like, it can never be done. Like we've, we've organized events um, in the Geekly community where we played uh, Unreal Tournament 2004 and got a lobby of like Whoa. 20 people. And it was Whoa. great. Yeah. yeah, it was awesome. But, I'm getting uh, chills, buddy this whole episode like this is adjacent this isn't exactly what we're talking about but mm -hmm. i think I, I maybe i've told you this before my um ut 2004 folder is 35 gigs <laughs> the game is four gigs and i've just like collected content because then you can't because like I, I download maps and they disappear and you can never yep. find them again and so yep. i've just got this backed up on my nas and I drag and drop it whenever I want to play ut 2004 which is nuts because it kind of makes you a game librarian in a way because if those files don't exist anywhere else, you're the plug now, buddy. I know it's weird to think of that as a sense of responsibility, but people put time and effort into this shit. I think it's really, really easy to forget when we talk about video games. These are the product of human labor and often have a lot of love and emotion put into them. So it's not just shit disappearing. It's not just nothing. My favorite part of using Abandonware Freeware, these older PC games that you can get access to, I love to kill my own nostalgia. Like, yes. Yes. Just play a game that I thought was important to me. or I thought I liked as a kid and just go, you know, there's so much of this that's about me and very little of this is about this shitty game. Or, <laughs> But or the alternative is finding a game that you really sync with for whatever reason 
and really getting to enjoy it at the same time while reflecting like, okay, here's why I enjoy it. It's not just pressing the serotonin button on your brain. You know, it's not just here's the instant wish fulfillment. When I play Mario now, I can't help but like think about the other Mario games I've played. And it means that something like Mario 3 to me when I was a kid was completely inscrutable and hard to understand. And now when I go back and play it, it's like, oh, I just I couldn't wrap my head around it. I I didn't like it for what it was. So it's a really interesting way that you can kind of do a little self-reflection when you're playing your video games, which, you know, God forbid. I, I like to avoid that when possible. Yeah. Let's go through a couple of abandonware sites. We've got My Abandonware, which is the newest, shiniest, flashiest abandonware site. Great reviews, lots of easy access, really, really good collection with a lot of description. You've also got the Internet Archive. That's a public library in the state of California that will put up all of these old abandonware games, MAME ROMs, emulators, etc., all for the purposes of preservation while fighting in court to ensure that they can preserve those things. You know, they're the ones on the front line doing that work. That's a huge public service and one that's pretty wide ranging now. There's a big, big selection of old games. And finally, Home of the Underdogs, which has been to me, it's the website I associate with Abandonware, period. Not only is it a huge freeware database, but it's a huge Abandonware database and developers and publishers have put together their own rights licenses just so the game would be available on the Underdogs. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, just like writing specific copyright, uh, I don't know, waivers for this website because you like it. And that was started 20 plus years ago by Sarane Achavantankul. There was like music, there's manual scans, there's reviews from magazines back in the day. It really, really is meant to be a museum of sorts. And if you really want to read the history on that, there's a great article at Kotaku called Inside the Home of the Underdogs that'll walk you through the sort of the history of that company. Before we move away from this topic, Mike, do you have any closing words? I think that it, we, we've, we've covered this kind of already, but I just want to reiterate, mm-hmm. like people create this stuff and then it, and it, and it goes away unless somebody holds on to mm-hmm. it. And I, if I can get real for a second, like I've lost, like not, I, I wouldn't say I lost sleep, but like I worry about the hours that I've spent doing um, Drunks and Dragons now uh, Greetings Adventures mm-hmm. and where that's where that stuff's going to go. If oh, it, yeah. like, you know, after after I'm gone yeah. or whatever, um, I'm not, I, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't Googled how to submit a podcast to the Library of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I just I thought, hey, maybe the requirements are pretty lax. I don't know. They're, the, uh, they're more lax than you think, buddy. Um, <laughs> but no, oh, that's, that's I, well, you're totally we'll, we'll, right. We'll no, you're later. totally right about that. Like I, I make card games and board games as a hobby. I don't do that because it makes me money. That's not my profession. And I, I can't even call myself a professional, right? You kind of got to sell them to do that. But I do have like eight games I've made that I'm incredibly proud of. Yeah. And then every time I've played, I've really enjoyed. So, you know, if I, you know, go away before I ever get to turn those into something, I consider that a loss. How many people have that other shit in the back of their head? These lost ideas, these lost works, stuff like that. These things that have existed but are no longer accessible to us for whatever reason. This shit's real, and you do eventually feel that loss, I think. I don't know if, it, it, if you have to wait until you, it kicks in. Maybe it's just because this is a midlife crisis for me. But look, I've got plenty of other midlife crises going on, okay? <laughs> like, I very much relate to that because it's, it is that sort of thing where it's like, I'm really proud of this, and it really meant something to me, but I can't communicate that. You know what I mean? I just have to make sure it fucking exists because that's the key right. thing right now. 
Right. It's, it's, it's really is like beating back the forces of entropy with like a broom instead of actually, you know, building something long term. It's kind of a bummer. But at the same time, the best part about this is the only reason why these games are preserved, because people are hilarious and don't like to follow the law. That's it. Yep. Right. And that rocks. Human beings are great. I really, really like that part of uh, being alive and seeing all these things that people do just because just because just they want to do something. I'm actually really encouraged by the community involved far more so than any sort of like commerce talk or business talk, because it's like the community is responsible for so much of this shit and they'll never get credit for it. They'll never they're they're not getting books written about them. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll pick one or two important person out of a, a cloud of 100,000 and do an interview about their parents and shit. That's how this stuff is remembered. It, it just sucks. But we're doing our th- what we can to fight back against it not against a midlife crisis. I'm pretty clueless, but (laughs) against the idea that like this stuff has to go away. If we just talk about it and we're a little bit more honest about how we spend our time, it wouldn't feel so embarrassing. It wouldn't feel so weird to talk about. You break laws all the time. Everybody does. A lot of people in this country would have broken laws by existing in the past. And some still do now. So just there's what people do. And sometimes what people do breaks the law. It's still important. This game is over. now a brief respite as part of the game crimes reading series today i'll be reading from the underdog manifesto an anonymously written document uploaded to the underdog's abandonware website at some point in time in 1997 written by anonymous software developers this manifesto is an angry screed against the commodification of games and against the commodification of developers seeing creatives as drones it's an interesting piece because history doesn't typically allow us to associate these kind of feelings and beliefs with the past unless they're dead and buried it's not possible that people could be believing these things for 30 years and nothing changed right wrong (laughs) i think you'll see people were using the internet to distribute radical ideas very early And I think that when you see human history as a collection of radical ideas that kind of congealed together, it's useful to to relating to the world around you. (laughs) Here's the underdog manifesto, or at least selections from it. This is addressed to video game companies. You need to imitate existing products to reduce the risk of publishing. Sheer and utter lunacy, a theory in complete defiance of the facts of the history of our field. The products that have become huge hits have almost always been startlingly innovative. Amazing departures from what has gone before. The real risk is in developing the Me Too product. The poor imitation. An incremental change from something else. The real wins come with creative vision. The narrow retail channel forces millions into promotional expenses. 
kill it. There's no shelf space on the internet. Death to software, etc. And because almost every PC in America is connected to a pipe that can carry bits. So why are we copying bits to plastic and metal platters, sticking them in boxes full of air and shipping them cross country? When it's far easier, cheaper, and environmentally sensible to ship those bits down the pipe. We will explore the enormous plasticity of what is the game. The fantastic flexibility of code, seeking new game styles and new approaches to the form. We will create games we know gamers will want to play. Because we are gamers, not NBAs or assholes from Hollywood or marketing dweebs whose last gig was selling Tide. We reject the machine. We reject the retail channel. We reject big budgets and big teams. We reject $50 boxes of air. We reject end caps and payments for shelf space. We reject executives and producers who don't understand what they sell. We reject timidity. We reject the notion that we know what works and commit ourselves to finding new things that work. I thought for the first episode, it'd be fun to play a little bit of a game with my pal Mike here. And Mike, I'm going to give you the name of a freeware distribution model. And I want to know what you think it is. Okay. And I will count up your correct answers. And at the end, if you get the correct number of answers, I will do absolutely nothing. Hell yeah. <laughs> okay. Wait, what are you going to do if I don't get the right answer? <laughs> don't get enough right oh, answers. Oh, shit. Um, I guess <laughs> is, this I will... a, is this a punitive system? Yes, it is. I will. Uh, I will. I, I don't know. Do I have anything I can hit myself with? No, damn it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'll okay. flog myself later. I'll flog later. I'll flog later. Abandonware. Uh, abandonware to me feels like a, uh, a, a, a quasi quasi legal definition um, <laughs> that mostly means you might like it. Theoretically, somebody could take you to court. Oh, yeah. But nobody really gives a shit. So they're not going to do it. Exactly. <laughs> That is one point for Mike. I'm going to put that up on the board. All right. Freeware. Uh, freeware software distributed for free um, with, and I, I was, I almost said with no license, but that's not really that's true. A lot not, of times not they necessarily use, true. Yeah. Maybe yeah. like GNU or however you're supposed to pronounce that or. Oh yeah. Don't, don't worry about the, the, the yeah. Linux people are fine and they're cool and all, but I don't understand their language. Hell yeah. I'm, I'm giving you a ding for that one. That's two for two. We're going to move into one we haven't talked about here. Trialware. I, I, I want to say that this is going to be similar to similar to Nagware. Like those are almost interchangeable where uh, you get a certain period of time where you're allowed to use the full features of the software. And then it starts. It's it either um, locks you out of using the software moving forward or constantly bug you about using the, uh, the, the software. Ding, 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 ding. That's correct. Winrar. That's right. Winrar is both <laughs> trialware and Nagware. If you want a good example of trialware, uh, MIRC would be a great one where you can essentially use it for 28 days and then you just can't. Nagware would be what then? Because that's literally the next one on my list. <laughs> oh, it's 
like that it, it allows you to keep using the software but it will constantly tell you tell you that you uh, that you shouldn't be <laughs> yes okay so i'm giving you two dings for that that's you got both definitions right i mean you're like they're, they're pretty similar i'm not fucking know that yeah, yeah yeah okay this one's pretty different postcardware oh fuck you gotta like mail in for a serial <laughs> <Yes>. code or <laughs> a postcardware game would be shipped with a postcard like a self-addressed postcard with postage that you would then include money in the mail and you would get the rest of the game so to use doom as a comparison you'd get one floppy disk that would have the first two levels and then you'd send your postcard in and you'd get six more in the mail perfect <laughs> perfect i you know what you're five for five damn yeah not bad shareware <sighs> shareware is the, now now we're getting muddy because like i think that this has to do more like partially with the with the licensing but also to do with the distribution where you're yes. where you're allowed to give it give it to your friends but it's te- it's generally not the full version of the that uh, is a ding. of the software that is the ding. The, the, the shareware model is literally you can share it, but you can't sell it. That, that's the basic rule. Freemium. Uh, free for ba- free to use basic features. Uh, pay an extra cost to unlock more. You're getting it. You're getting it. That's seven for seven, baby. We got adware. Oh, it's ad supported. Um, their, yeah. their business model is getting paid by the uh, uh, by the advertisers for your eyes you got it this one might seem a little weird but i actually think you have a good example on hand register where i have a good example on hand launchbox is a register where you might have to tell me this one because i had to pay for that right but they give you a registration file to insert into the file instead of just putting your name in a database oh gotcha so they so they don't know anything about me once they've given out the file that's just a license that's out in the wild that they don't keep track of exactly they register it to your name but essentially as long as you use those credentials it's you can use it for a full and free copy of the program it's unlike most registration schemas because where you would just log in remotely you actually have to get an email from launchbox to like copy paste a folder inside the launchbox folder but i'm giving you to it anyway because it counts (laughs) (laughs) open source Open source is it would be uh, it's it's free software, but also the source code is freely available um, for people to modify, but generally not sell. It's like the best. Not always. It's, it's like ultra legal to share. It's like the most legal way to share shit. Uh, dang. Crippleware. Oh, it's like a like a. It's like a virus. No, hey, it's <laughs> close, shit. though. It's close. No. It's a, it, it, is that, just think about it for a second. Just give it a little time. It's a little bit like a time demo. So they reduce the features that you can use at the yeah, end. Yeah, so you get a full featured version of the game at the front, and then you can still use it after the time period, even though you lose several core features, and then you have to pay to get them back. We're going to donationware. Is that pay what you want? That's pay Basically. what you want. And that was actually okay. cute. Donationware was the original term for it. It was actually done by one of those three initial abandonware guys. And it comes from the phrase, this is free. Donate money to me, please. Yeah. <laughs> Way back in 83, people were posters in real life. And then finally, you've got them all, Mike. This is the last one. This is for the crown jewel. This is for me not hitting myself with a garden hose and penitence. Wait, that was if I miss even one, you were going to do that? If you miss even one. What a curve. <laughs> Those are the rules. <laughs> Mike, what is bundleware? 
Uh, oh, is that is that like when you buy it when you buy a fucking Dell and it comes with all the software already pre-installed on it? <laughs> you got oh. it. Oh, oh, my legs are not whipped tonight. <laughs> next time. Well, next time I'm just gonna like have to set up more elaborate home alonean punishments for myself. But that is twelve for twelve. That means, Mike, uh, you're officially the gamer master, the whereas lord, and the admiral of abandoned wear. How do you feel today with all the success dripping off you? Well, I tell you what, when I when I fly, uh, when I when I buy an airline ticket, I usually put doctor as the prefix on my name. Um, but <laughs> I think I'm going to start putting whereas lord on on the on the end there. Maybe it's my middle name. You can uh, always abbreviate it as WRZ. And then when people <laughs> ask you what it means, you just say you're a lawyer. Well, thank you for joining us on this game show today. We're going to be coming back later with game reviews. And by later, I mean right now. We have to talk about some games that we played on stream. You guys know we have a stream, right? Where we play these games. You don't just talk shit at you. You get to come and watch us play old, weird games, interact, force us to play a game or two. Who knows? For this show, what we've set up is that Mike is going to be allowed to drop games on me, and I'm dropping games on him. And in a lot of cases, we've never played these games. We don't have a lot of experience with them. So we're seeing them for the first time, too. But before we get into the games we play, I would like to do a public service right quick and also feed my own ego. Mike, if you were to tell the listeners to get one single abandon or freeware game and it would be completely worth their time and in the best possible game that they could get. You know, I was thinking about that, actually, and I all, I I wanted to pick Inner Space. Now, if you're familiar. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah, but guess what? That shit's not abandoned where that dude is still oh. actively selling it. If you if you call that phone number on their website, uh, SD, SDISpace.com, if you if you call the number on the website, they answer it as software dynamics. This is the only Holy thing they've shit. ever made. But they, but it's still like a husband and wife that still answers it. Oh, yeah. And they're selling they're selling. Guess how much they're selling the game for? Sixty. Uh, well, it's it's not not quite. They're selling the complete edition of Interspace. Uh, this is a uh, was this I forget if this is DOS or Windows three one when I played this, but it's it's getting up there. It's thirty four ninety five for the complete edition. If you want all the extra <laughs> ship sets, it's forty dollars. Oh my god! Like so, the price literally hasn't changed ever. Yeah, if they were going to give me a box copy of it, I would consider that. I think, mm -hmm. but uh, that game for for those of you who don't know, um, basically you are a little spaceship, and it starts out like you you're just you're sitting on a little platform and you fly into your computer, and then you go <laughs> the levels the levels inside you're inside your computer every file on your computer, well every folder on your computer I should say is a is a level in this game and you fly the spaceship around and you're destroying like viruses that are corrupting your files so that. The thing about this is the larger your hard drive, the longer the game takes the beat. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like now it would be it, it's an it's an it's truly endless game because it was designed when the typical size of your hard drive is measured in megabytes, not not gigabytes. So I, th I think I had a 250 megabyte hard drive at the time. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, do you know how long it would take just to play through a video of Blank Man? The size mm. of the file doesn't take longer. It's the number of files you have. So if you just had a Damon Wayans movie on your hard drive, that's just one <laughs> file. Now, if you had the raw project folder 
the, the full like <laughs> premiere project folder for a Damon Wayans movie that would take a lot longer to go through. What's your game? Dune oh, 2. All right. Yeah, Dune 2 is really, really good. So Dune 2 is like a, a real-time strategy game, very similar to Command & Conquer or StarCraft. It's before those games. And it also has so much texture from the Lynch movie, the, the really, really good Lynch movie. This is not a hot take. That movie's fucking good. Y'all are just nerds. I often find the writing in the game is much better than the writing in Frank Herbert's books. Put your hand in the box and take a chance. Mike, you may be playing a game called Ken's Labyrinth. Yeah, speaking of Doom. <laughs> uh, speaking of. These came, yeah, no shit. This came out in the same, Doom came out in the same year as Ken's Labyrinth. Um, mm-hmm. Let me look at the, uh, the release dates here. January 1st for, for Ken's Labyrinth. So It's actually, hard to beat that. Yeah, it actually predates. Doom wasn't until December 10th. So it really shows you what Ken's Labyrinth could have been with another 12 months in the oven. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, but, the other thing about it, too, is that if you go on the dude's website, you see that he has early builds of this back to multiple years before its formal release. Yeah. Like what, what, we're, what we were playing was the 90th iteration on this idea. And that still came out before Doom. And there are actually versions of this of the the engine that came out after the game, probably for newer episodes or something. I'm not sure. But um, mm-hmm. that include uh, include Doom levels remade in the uh, Ken's Labyrinth engine. Which means that, like, the pinkies would be replaced by, like, I don't know, small toy planes or... This is a game with a lot of really strange abstract imagery. And if you're expecting a Doom-like or a Doom clone that's just running through and shooting guys, you're going to be very disappointed. Although you fi- it looks like you found something about the, uh, the engine that... Uh, it, it's got a legacy that I wasn't aware of. Oh, yeah. So the, the Ken's Labyrinth engine eventually became the build engine which is a first person, I think it's a first person shooter only engine, might be third person, but it's, it's an engine essentially for making first person shooter games, the most famous being Duke Nukem 3D, which is a lovely game that I quite like, uh, despite the everything about it. Are you familiar with the, um, with the, I think, I think they had to change their name because Iron Maiden sued, but uh, it was formerly known as Ion Maiden? No. Oh. It, it came out the, just this past year, actually. It was an, it's a brand new game made in the build engine or a version of the build engine. So essentially, people are still building on Ken's Labyrinth like 30 years after it came out. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's pretty nuts for what this game actually is, because it's the best way to describe it. It's like a, it's it's a slow first person shooter. And it's kind of I called it dopey in my notes, but I think that's affectionate. Like, it's just kind of goofy looking. It doesn't it's not trying to give off this atmosphere of like menace or anything. It very much has like a, an environment of this is some dude's weird playground. Yeah. And that's kind of cool compared to Doom because I love Doom. Doom's one of my favorites. But when you're looking for a game in the same genre, I don't necessarily want the same game with different guns. And in this game is a game where like you save up change to use on a soda machine. And based on the game I play, you have to work at least uh, 45 minutes to do that. Like <laughs> This is not the same game. And you dot you dodge giant uh, giant eight giant balls. Eight balls. What were some of the other uh, monsters in the game? There were bats. Yeah, there were bats that blended into the brick color behind them. Uh, there are there's a guy in like a soldier's outfit. The sound design, I think. Oh my god. <laughs> there's also some really weird choices, like putting a map on the wall. So like at the beginning of every level, you get a map of the entire level. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was kind of neat. It's really neat. Plus the idea of like episodes too so this is one of those games that was released in episodes you'd likely get the first episode as a disc and then the other two would come by mail or something but like there is a lot of game here 
if you wanted to sit down and play through Ken's Labyrinth, I'd imagine you'd be there for a while. I thought I looked up a speed run time for Ken's Labyrinth and there wasn't one. <laughs> <laughs> Which, well, no, that means you set this. You set the speed run. Yeah, that's for beating one level. That's yeah. so bizarre that there's a game in existence that doesn't have a speed run record. But if you can find one, let me know. I, w- I do want to say I'm kind of it sounds like I'm bagging on this game. This game is really interesting, and I think the levels are actually pretty well designed. Given the limitations of the software, there are a lot of really clever ideas here. It's essentially a, a, a game that shows off what this engine could do. And in trying to show off all of those different things, they've made this really weird patchwork. I called it Art Fair Doom in my notes. Like, mm-hmm. it's got that weird handmade quality to it that you really don't get in a lot of games. Then I asked myself the question, why is this game interesting? Right. So I wrote that down. And my answer is, I think it has a lot to do with its history, right? Because this guy, Ken Silverman, who created it, has a really long history in games. Ken's Labyrinth and the engine behind it eventually was released by Epic Mega Games. I think they're called, are they still called Mega Games? Epic Mega Games? I don't think so. (laughs) Right. So they're just Epic Games. I think they're called Epic Games. Yeah. So this game was purchased by Epic and then the engines and assets for it were meant to build what is modern day epic which would be gears of war fortnite uh unreal tournament unreal tournament for sure so it's like this gigantic pc company that went on to become a monster their rendering software is top of the line i I believe they're in charge of unreal engine too right yeah yeah uh unreal engine 5 was just uh uh, unveiled i think as well it'd be fair to say that around 25% 25% of games on the modern market are developed in the Unreal Engine. Yeah, yeah, and it's it, it's it's seeing a lot of success on the uh the Switch right now as well just for how well it uh how well it scales. I think a lot of developed games that would normally have been developed in Unity are are seeing a move to Unreal Engine 4 because Which of means that. that Ken's Labyrinth is responsible for every game you like. Mm-hmm. Wrap your head around that, guys. It's weird. It's bad. No, it's not bad actually. It kind of rocks. Because this game was originally sold out of the dude's car. You know, it was a complete DIY punk rock enterprise. He was making copies of the game and giving it out to people who want it. And eventually it ends up in, in the hands of some guy who wants to start a big company. And 30 years later, they're one of the only companies. So you go and you trace back all these breadcrumbs and you end up in this weird little game about not dying when you get by a pool ball. <laughs> it, it's, it's just really weird when you when you start looking history at, at the long tail in terms of the games that are left there this is a game that to me is not really indicative of the time it came out i don't think a lot of games from the era really looked or played like this yeah that's true i mean is that your experience because you said you played this growing up right growing up i, I think it's probably I, I i played i probably played doom first so this was a little more underwhelming to me, but I, I still I still thought it was interesting and I still obviously remember it to this day. And I and I spent mm-hmm. a decent amount of time on it, um, but I did only have the the shareware version of it um, that I got from my buddy's software, the month club floppy disks. That was probably enough, right? Like there's a decent amount of content in that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was enough to get me through a few levels and try and find secrets and stuff. Yeah, I, I, that was uh, it, it was great. I got a lot of fun out of it. My experience with that kind of stuff is that I had way more shareware than I did like full games. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I just kind of cycled shareware. <laughs> I would move from one yeah. to the next to, or demo discs or all that stuff. Because when you're a kid, it's not like you're going to be out there buying these $50 PC games every day. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's do the bottom line. Should our listeners play Ken's Labyrinth? 
Yeah, well, <laughs> Gunner, I, I'm going to say I you have to really I think I think you're going to be you're going to be a specialized case like mm-hmm. UJ specifically. Yes. I think you're going to say, yeah, because because of your your interest in the history of things. Um, I'm more of like, a. I, I think I'm going to look at it for more of a um, a practical sense where it's like as a game. Like, should you play this? And it's a dangerous play. It's a dangerous way to look at it, because I feel like a lot of times just because it, like you're going to look at older games, you're going to be like, be like, no, you shouldn't play it. There's there's better newer games. And I, I don't I don't mean it in that sense. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. No, you're saying you're comparing it to all things instead of just its time and its region and its context and its history. Yeah. And I and I think it just I just don't I don't think that it aged well, I felt I remember feeling like it was dated when it was new. Yeah, yeah. And and it just is. It's a little bit. Uh, it, it can be a little bit impenetrable, especially nowadays when I don't. I don't want to say attention span is limited, but time is limited. But also, a lot of game mechanics and, and stuff are communicated to us in very, very different ways. And you're gonna you're gonna absolutely. find yourself getting caught on those when you play older games. And so I think maybe a lot of that came naturally to me. Whereas, you know, not having two analog sticks in a modern third person shooter would drive me nuts. Like, but that this is absolutely one of those kind of games. So I would come down on, yeah, you should play it. But I think maybe more as a sort of way of looking into like an art book or a fashion book in the past, it's worth 15 to 20 minutes for the way it looks and feels and sounds by itself. It's got texture to it. It's not bland whatsoever. I haven't necessarily spent a lot of time on it, but I also didn't regret any of the time I spent on it. So if you were like me and only played it for 20 minutes, I think you would probably have a good time for those 20 minutes. But after that, I don't know. It's definitely yeah. a curiosity, but it's not without meaning or, or like merit. I think it's just it has hurdles that you have to jump in order to get into it, which is, is not really mechanical or anything. It's just kind of. It's awkward. Is that the best way to describe it? It's an awkward game. <laughs> like yeah. a little fumbly, a little clumsy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it it doesn't have the benefit of the development no, time. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> you know, the the years of the years of of games building on top of each other. No, that's absolutely true. To. It's made with all that kind of shared cultural knowledge that we take for granted. So, I mean, yeah, try it, but don't expect a masterpiece. It's fun though. It's like going to an antique mall or something. Little little potato chip of a game. The next game we played was a little, <laughs> little tuna, tuna can. Tuna you can. have a little tuna can for a snack, right? No, I don't do that. But you might. You might eat tuna. And if you did, this is like a little can of tuna. Is that a, do people really just eat cans? For real though? It's like canned tuna. Yeah, they, they dump the tuna out mm. and then just munch on the can. <laughs> Eating different cans for their flavor profile based on the residue, but not on the food itself. Based on how they've been seasoned. <laughs> I've had seven different stews in this one can. This has got a rich umami savory texture. Right, so you made me play another game. Yeah. And I got to say, this one, I think, is going to be way more amenable to people in the modern day. Uh-huh. And it's called ZZT. It's an, an ASCII, as in text, 
based puzzle game. There's some roguelike elements. There's some RPG elements. There's some adventure game elements. You got to be careful calling it text based, I think, too. Well, that's fair. Like it yeah, is it is fair. characters, but we're not talking about a typical like, you know, you're not going to be fighting crews or anything like this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like they use they use the ASCII um, character set. It's not a language based game. It's just that everything in the game looks like a letter or a shape or something. Because this was a way, an easy way to represent those things. If you've played something like Dwarf Fortress or NetHack, Hangband, Rogue, or even Caves of Cud, which is the most modern version of this, this is kind of like an art style. You know what I mean? It's something you kind of get used to after you play it. I don't find it something that's like a big barrier to people enjoying this kind of game, but I could be wrong. The other thing about ZZT, it's a game engine. And there were creative software and suites for people to make their own levels, make their own setups within the game itself. So it's not just a single game. It's like a billion games, right? Mm-hmm. We only played one called Town of ZZT. Yep, Town of ZZT. It's the one I grew up with. But you could absolutely go online and find ZZT levels made by some of your favorite game developers just by poking around. This was kind of a, a for PC software at its time, a very state-of-the-art way for players to create and distribute material to each other. And this is another game that was sold kind of in a very DIY punk fashion by its creators, a small operation, and then eventually it just got popular enough that a big game company picked it up. Yeah, we're talking about another uh, another Epic Games pedigree. It's true. And this one is, yeah. it's actually stuff like this that kind of made Epic's name at first. Epic wasn't always known as like this AAA developer of top-of-the-line console games. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. They were like a boutique PC publisher at start which meant that like these weird artsy games like ZZT had a home with this label. I mean, this game was released in 1991. It's a DOS game, so it's pretty dang old, but it's a game that has a pretty long shadow. You can find a lot of people talking about it. I described it in my notes as Dwarf Fortress for normal people. (laughs) (laughs) What I mean by that is that there are a lot of these games that are very, very, very mechanic heavy, if that makes sense. So a game like Dwarf Fortress is very hard to pick up on your first swat because not only are you dealing with the visual representation of letters and shapes, but you're also juggling 90 mechanics at the same time. This, you're getting presented with the same setup, but the game itself is not hard to understand, right? Yeah. It's, it's your pretty typical walk up to a thing, talk to it, look at it, poke it, punch it. That sounds like a much more fun version of Bop It. <laughs> tell you about my idea for it oh, we're gonna get off topic Steph, edit this out no no my keep this, in, keep this a, in the hogs need feed is my idea for a uh for uh, an asynchronous version of bop it played on mobile phones <laughs> and like it's like your friend just bopped it you have to twist it now <laughs> and they get and they maybe they give you like 48 hours you know i really regret the day that fucking births into existence like Athena out of your broken skull. <laughs> and I just have to deal with the rest of my life with my mom, who I love very much, sending me notifications every 15 minutes to bop it, touch it, pull it, tug it, drop it, twist it. This is this has become a ghost on my soul. I'm just imagining after that game comes out, it'll be OK to get those texts. What? No, 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 no. If your family is if your family is sending you text right now asking you to tug it, like then don't don't respond. Yeah, or you know, Mike. Theoretically, we could we could wish this thing into unexistence <laughs> and put. That's we true. Could, we could put this beautiful morsel of knowledge 
and hide it away from the world <laughs> so that no one ever has to see it or think about it. <laughs> Put this in the Library of Congress. Yeah, they have a big folder at the Library of Congress that says Mike's brain ideas. <laughs> and just every three months, I get a couple of postcards from you. Can you can yeah. I ask can Jay, can I ask this of you? Can you help can you help me get a YouTube poop into the Library of Congress? I want I want the first YouTube poop in the Library of Congress. That's, what that's my goal. I have a I have a popular one. I have one with like what? 2.5 million views you popped off with a YouTube poop. I did. Oh, Wilfred Brimley eats people with diabetes. That's you. Have you seen it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's me. I made that one, one late night in 2009. Oh, 11 God. years ago. Oh, brain echoes. What the fuck? That had a lot of views and I never really considered it successful until somebody else showed it to me. <laughs> Okay. All right. I've made it. Uh, just someone brings you the YouTube poop on their fucking Samsung flip phone, and you just immediately <laughs> light an enormous cigar and just lean. Oh, baby, I seen that one. <laughs> so fucking good. I did that and pirated Sony Vegas. <laughs> you see the art and culture we would be losing without piracy. It's a shame. <laughs> Should we finish off ZZT? Yeah. To me, the reason why ZZT was interesting was reading about this creative suite and the background behind it. Because while I'm playing the game and I'm appreciating the individual level design, there's still that like nagging feeling in the back of my brain like this is one of a million things you could try. All in the same game and all with like taking up less computer space than my, I don't know, like a PDF. Did you ever get to play anything other than Town of ZZT? I want to say I tried to play City. But it was one of those things where it's like, I want to watch Aladdin. Am I going to watch Aladdin or am I going to watch fucking Prince of the King, King of Thieves or whatever? King of Queens. <laughs> you know what? That's actually better. I'm going with that. Am I going to if I want to watch Aladdin, am I going to watch Aladdin or the Kevin James hit hit CBS TV show King of Queens? And City of ZZT to me felt more like King of Queens. I could see why people like it, but. I much prefer to watch Aladdin. You said Prince of Thieves, right? Yeah. I guess the question is, should people play ZZT? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so talk to me about that. Because I think that there are similar hurdles that, that we talked about with the last one. There are, for sure. But I think that I think the difference is, like, if you're looking to play, like, a first-person shooter or even an exploration-based first-person shooter... There's better examples of that. Like, yeah, you lose some of the charm of an early game like that, but you also like I don't think that the charm is worth losing out on the modern conveniences. Oh, no, no, no. Comparing that to like Doom or something, even though it's six months apart, they're a world of difference. Yeah, but with ZZT, I can't really point to anything that really anything really like close to mm. it, even from that era in terms of like tone and like gameplay style and i mean like you might look at like a, a fallout mm -hmm. or something where you've got like you've got you've got action you know you'll you'll meet people along the way and have like puzzles that you have to solve and things where the pace like pretty often will slow down but this game is just such a weird like anomaly that I can't even really make that comparison without a bunch of asterisks. I, I had a comparison that jumped into my brain, but I really don't know how appropriate it is. But this game reminded me a lot of Nier in the modern day. 
in the sense that like near is a game that's about just like two characters or whatever but there's bullet hell segments there's platforming there's combat there's adventure there's it's kind of like this melange of ideas and as ZZT is not one type of game like there are sections of this game where you're dodging bullets like a space shooter it's not a one-to-one mm-hmm. with a jrpg or something like that so my mind is really struck in that like this is a game that's far more open than a lot of its predecessors and a lot of more open world games are going to have a lot in common with it and accessible creation tools is like way ahead of its oh, time way ahead of its time and to the point where a lot of people like when the sequel to zzt came out super zzt it was a complete flop because it lacked those creative tools despite by all accounts being a great game i would say you should definitely play this game i think it's really smart if you want to write a book on how to design video game levels start here it's like here in doom and there's so Mm -hmm. much attention to detail but everything seems so clean everything seems so easy to find and, and distinct from one another it's just a fascinating game it's like opening up a watch and looking at all the gears go there's a billion different sizes and you don't know what they do but you're impressed that there's just so much going on black screen and neon text that's all i ever want like that's the sort of aesthetic that no other art form can recreate that sort of weird you need your cyans and your magentas baby you feed me all the next codes this sounds weird but there are absolutely people out there including myself that prefer to have older televisions because of the way they display color Oh, so you're not talking about like CGA graphics. No, I'm not talking about CGA graphics specifically. I'm talking about the aesthetic of this game, which seems to be black everything and then neon everything else. Yeah. And that sort of feeling, the feeling of playing that game in a darkened room at night, you can't replicate the way that makes your eyes feel, the way that makes your brains feel. It's wholly unique to video games, that whole aesthetic, that look, that feel. I had LED bias lighting behind my candy, (laughs) so it was a little bit different for me. (laughs) I mean, did you ever uh, burn your eyes away with a CRT? I mean, because that's that's the thing for me is like seeing these kind of colors on a CRT is just yeah. all I'm looking for. Yeah. So I got I got ruined for um, for like CRT monitors in general, just because like uh, the TV that I played Super Nintendo on for years, we never replaced it. It would have a thing where it's like if it if it displayed too much white on the screen, it would flash like constantly and you might possibly you might possibly oh. never get it to stop until you turned it off and unplugged it for a long time. Ooh. And so that was especially a problem playing Donkey Kong Country 2. There were the levels where you have that like that angler fish that's got the flashlight on his head and they had an effect where when you yes. turn from one direction to the other, the fish would turn around and for one frame the whole screen would go white and that would always cause that issue. <laughs> so no, CR- CRTs can fuck off. It seems like you've been done dirty. Yeah, it was, but it was rough. By both CRT monitors and Rare. I saw a video of Ronald Reagan on that television. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. You had to see him without all of the beautiful lines in his face. Yeah, now I won't the watch be- that great head shape. I won't watch Reagan footage without 4K HDR. <laughs> <laughs> Putting scan lives on, on footage of the Vietnam War. Properly color corrected <laughs> Ronald Reagan is something I just can't I can't understate. Uh, I don't I don't want to think about it, though, like because you think of Reagan's face, right? Yeah. And it's already a little too smooth, a little bit of that smooth Yoda feel. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to see it in more detail. Imagine like a, a real life, like live action version of a Ren and Stimpy gross up. <laughs> That's Ronald Reagan on an HDTV. <laughs> yeah, 
hurts because Nixon looks like he was designed by John K. <laughs> I can see that happening. <laughs> All right. And that is the end of episode one of Game Crimes, Abandonware and Freeware. Thanks for joining us. Please tweet at us and yell at us and tell us all your favorite old weird game stuff at Game Crimes Pod on Twitter. Well, there's one thing I would like to say, a special message out to a certain group of people. Cops, feds, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Join us next time for episode two, The Wild World of Bootleg Handhelds. Welcome back to 90s Time Trip. It's that anti-piracy classic, Don't Copy That Floppy. Two game-loving kids get a lesson from DP, the rapper from cyberspace. Come on, guys! <laughs> I thought you knew better, don't copy that floppy! He thought his game was unlocked until the uniform man came at his door with a knock. Now he's got nothing to say. He's petrified and he's shocked. He was the king of the town. Now he's the lap of don't copy that. What? Why don't copy that? What? What? Why don't copy that? What? Why? Cause he's not just a copy, it's a crime. Cause he's not just a copy, it's a crime. No, it's not just a copy, it's a crime. Say it's not just a copy, it's a crime. No, it's not just a copy, it's a crime.